grades three and below. Brian? Well, thank you for those songs this morning. That was wonderful. It's great to sing Psalm 23. So at least you got to you got to hear it. So no matter how bad the sermon is, you've heard the word of God this morning, right? Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Psalm 23. Please feel free to use the Bible in the seat in front of you. And uh, take it with you, as Matt says, if, you, if it would help you out if you don't have one, or if you have somebody that needs one. Well, Psalm 23, this morning we are in the presence of biblical royalty. Uh, Psalm 23 is unquestionably the best known of the Psalms, and along with the Ten Commandments and John 3.16 and a few other verses, uh, it's in the small category of Bible verses that are well known to Christians and actually many non-Christians as well. And, uh, and with good reason. It is a remarkable poem. Uh, a word of warning up front. Uh, there's so much of value in this poem that it cannot be covered in the short time that I have um, to talk about it. It's long, uh, well-earned place in our hearts is uh, a comfort and a calm confidence. And it provides us uh, what it is, which is a psalm of trust and of confidence in the Lord. It's a lyric poem, um, but it's an emotive poem. And it, its truth is, comes from um, the core of the psalmist's being as he talks and touches the core of our being. And we meditate on the images in this psalm that are stacked literally one on top of another, um, and so our, our task this morning is to say a few things about it and to meditate on it meaningfully, um, to engage meaningfully, but at the same time to stay away from a propositional analysis of it because it is a beautiful 3,000-year-old uh, lyric poem. To analyze it is to rob it of its truth, to touch us deeply. And so we kind of want to be careful to see how it can instill the clarity and the confidence in our relationship with our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, without becoming too tied up in the analysis and minutia. Now, I think we all have this experience that I'm talking about, the, the, the medium that we want to draw in our personal relationships. Maybe some of you have experienced this where one person in the relationship will come to the other to chat about something that's happening to them that's of deep significance to them, is touching them and affecting them deeply. But the person that they're talking to is not going through it. And so what they do is they respond with an analysis. And they provide all kinds of advice and solutions of what they should do to, to solve the problem or move past it. And quite stunningly, their brilliant analysis is ill-received by the first person. Um, the conversation gets derailed and it ends in miscommunication. And the issue is that the first person wanted to engage. 
and they wanted to work it through with someone that they cared for and loved, the second person approaches it in problem-solving mindset. And one can't stereotype, but let's just say that the male part of the species tends towards the problem-solving, but it does work both ways. Trust me, it does work both ways. I've never had this happen to me in my life, of course, and I can say that because Holly is not here this morning. <laughs> so we want to engage with it, but we also want to think meaningfully about it. So let's try to do that, keep a happy medium, and we're going to do it in three steps. First, let's survey the poem as to what is actually there and what we can learn from the imagery and the poetry itself. And second then, let's ask how this ancient Hebrew poem can be relevant to a people who live millennia later in a different culture, in a different covenant, and yet it's our poem. And then finally, let's ponder how it has meaning for us and how it can even speak to us and touch the core of our being and our relationship with the Lord. So let's start then with overview of the psalm. If you've got it there in front of you, you can see that the psalmist conveys his confidence in the Lord by framing the poem in two statements of confidence. In verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then at the very end, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long, till the end of days, forever. That word has been interpreted, or translated rather, in several ways. Uh, it also happens to be, those two statements happen to be the only two uses of the divine name in the poem. And so it's the frame of confidence, the frame of who it is that we're talking about. The, poem, the, the poet rather uses two uh, dominant images, two pairs of dominant images. Uh, first and the most obvious is he uses the shepherd and sheep image. And so it is about the shepherd written by a sheep. And then second, uh, the metaphor continues on in verses 5 and 6. So 1 through 4 is the shepherd sheep. And then in 5 and 6 you see the host um, welcoming David into his banqueting table in his house. And that image, as I said, organizes verses 5 and 6. So in a fit of alliteration... I have tried to present the psalm in an overview with four Ps. I wanted to try to make Matt happy with alliteration. So first, the psalm is about what it means to have, to realize, to live with the presence of the Lord in one's life. That the Lord is present with David. And this reality is the main reason that it is a psalm of trust. That we can have him near us and with us, as is even said in the psalm. So it's the presence of God. But second, I see the psalm as a pilgrimage. The sheep is led along paths. And sometimes those paths, as we're going to see, are serene. And sometimes they're dangerous. But the shepherd's guidance leads him to the bountiful table of the host and the joy of a refreshed life in the house of the Lord. Now, much has been made of these two metaphors and how they join uh, by scholars and commentators. But it seems to me that one of the constants, and there aren't many constants between the two, is actually David himself. 
that he is the I and the me who is led as a sheep, and he is the I and the me who arrives at the table. And so I think that it is a movement to a destination, and in a sense, it is a picture of movement through the Christian life. The third P is that the host and the shepherd both provide, just as was just said and prayed. They provide for the sheep, they provide for the traveler and the guest, or the guest as they come to the house of the Lord. And we'll unpack that in a little bit. And then finally, protection. That the shepherd protects the sheep, the host protects the guest. And so David, although um, a psalm of David could, could mean that it was written um, by someone else, to David, it was written by somebody for David, it was written by somebody about David, um, and in my opinion, most likely it was written by David. Um, the prepositions are slippery things, as Tremper Longman says about Hebrew. But it's about, it's Davidic. That's the point. David's experience, and he presents the Lord as shepherd and hosts, both being the source of of trust and confidence. And so that's kind of what the poem is about in overview. So let's look at it a little bit closer now. Um, and in a real way, the first line sets the stage for the poem. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I'd like to come back to this line a little bit later. Um, but right now, we need to remember that the ESV that we're using here is the granddaughter of the King James Version. And in, the, in their translation of Psalm 23, they've kept a lot of the stateliness and the beauty of the King James and, and some of the vocabulary. And this is uh, one of those words is want. Uh, I shall not want is a word that meant in common usage, to lack something. And so they were in want of something. That's a usage that's rather bygone because in times recent, we use the word want to express desire or wish, right? So maybe to contrast the two, your children come to you and they do not say, dear father or mother, good father or mother, I am in want of food. They come to you and they say, hey, I'm hungry, I want McDonald's. There's the two uses. And it's a very important use and difference, as we'll see a little bit later. In verse 2, David describes what the shepherd provides for them. Hey, the green pastures is an image of these green fields in the winter and the spring, the verdant fields where the sheep can roam and, and eat in ancient Israel. And the growing grass meant that they didn't have to travel. It was leisure and serene. They could roam the fields and eat to their heart's content. And the still waters conveys that same feeling of serenity and of plenty and supply. The waters are not stagnant. It means they're not turgid. You're not trying to drink out of rapids, but rather it is a plentiful, easy-to-access source of water. And so in the dry land of Israel, the shepherd is presented as one who provides access to life-giving water in bounty. 
And these times of bounty that you see there at, at the beginning of verse 3, they restore the life of the sheep. Soul there is probably better translated life. The uh, Christian Standard Bible says, He renews my life. That this, this provision restores the vitality. And David says, My shepherd restores me. The shepherd then leads along right paths or paths of righteousness. These are the paths of God. They're the paths, the way that he had admonished his people through the centuries to follow. The shepherd is going to lead them along those paths of righteousness to get to their destination. And quite importantly here, it is imperative that the sheep submit to the authority of the shepherd to be led on that path. This psalm has no meaning and no benefit to any sheep that refuses to follow the right paths or paths of righteousness. And so submission of the sheep to the shepherd is critical in Psalm 23. That's why we have the very uh, next line or the, or the line there at the end of verse 3 is for his name's sake. This is about him and what he is doing and it's about his authority. Well, the shepherd is a profound servant to the sheep, as we see here. At the same time, we must say that there is no doubt that the sheep belong to him and not he to them. Now, we can say the Lord is my shepherd, as David says, but he's my shepherd because I belong to him. It's an important distinction, again, that we'll talk about in a minute. And to have their safe arrival at the house of the host is a matter of his faithfulness and of his reputation. And so this psalm and what is happening here as the, the, the sheep and the traveler progress is about the sake of the Lord's name. It reflects on him personally. And so while it's of great benefit to David, it actually is about the Lord. And as I mentioned, the shepherd provides protection as well too, doesn't he? Sometimes the path leads uh, through these serene places and moments and of, of wonderful provision. And then sometimes not. Sometimes they are the deep, death-like valleys where sight is limited, where direction is confusing, where a misstep is dangerous. And dangers lurk in the dark, and the specter of death surrounds them. Perhaps the image comes from traveling through the steep ravines and the wadis of the Judean hill country, where light was blocked out by the still steep walls and thieves, wild animals could hide. Here's a picture of one. This is one near Masada. But you can see if you were down in there, even in the daytime, it would be a bit dark and the terrain rather rough. It's in these deep, death-like places that the sheep can fear no danger because the rod of the shepherd and his staff are with him. Now, the rod is just this short cudgel that would be used to strike and drive away any animal that would attack them or any two-legged animal that would come near them. All enemies protected by the cudgel. And the staff, or the crook, was used to guide 
or to direct the sheep so that they did not wander off the path. As you can see, that would be pretty disastrous in something like that. They wouldn't be distracted and fall victim to the dangerous terrain. So these tools of the shepherd are his tangible and visible means by which he protects and directs his sheep. They're the ways that the sheep experience the greatest provision of all. You are with me. The presence of the shepherd himself in this time is what helps them and protects them. The host in verse 5, you see there, also provides, doesn't he? He welcomes the traveler or the guest into a table. Now that's a biblical image that you can trace down of the, the, the table of the Lord as he provides a meal. Here it is a sumptuous meal for the traveler. Oil is given to him to anoint the head of this weary, sun-baked, sun-burned traveler to refresh his head as he sits down to the meal. And his cup of wine overflows. That's another image too, isn't it? The bounty of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, as wine so often uh, symbolizes in the Bible. But the host also protects, doesn't he? Where does the guest eat there in verse 5? In the presence of his enemies. So if you picture a, a, a big table and the guest sitting there, around him are these enemies watching in the presence of his enemies. Now, are they vanquished or are they not? We don't know. We're not told. But what the image does convey to us is that they are unable to act against the traveler because they are protected by the host at his table. And so, like the dark valley, in the midst of danger, these people have a calmness, or David, rather, has a calmness, has a, a, a carelessness, in the sense that he knows that the host is taking care of him. And there's even joyous feasting because of the host's protection and provision. And if you take that image and then you read some of the other Psalms of David where he speaks of being able to sleep in the midst of his enemies arising in Psalms 3 and 4 and 5, you get the idea why. In the presence of his enemies, he realizes he's in the protection of the host. And wonder of wonders, the host's house is the tabernacle. It is the house of the Lord. David enjoys the fellowship and the hospitality of the Lord himself in his house, and he longs to return and to stay there all the days of his life. If you look down at some of the footnotes in the ESV at the bottom, you can see some of the different translations that could be of these words that he longs to come back, to return and dwell in the house of the Lord again and again, to tarry there and and enjoy the presence of the Lord, enjoying His provision, enjoying His protection, enjoying His presence, secure all the days of His life. Well, so much more could be said about those, couldn't they? And one of the interesting things uh, this week was I read a few other sermons, and 
And uh, it was like, well, that's really fascinating and great, but that's not what I'm talking about. There's so much that could be said about Psalm 23, and we can just keep preaching it and coming up with new applications and insights to this most remarkable poem. But there is another matter that we have to address this morning. And that is, how is it that we're reading this and saying that it applies to us here at Redeemer in Brighton, Colorado, clear across the world from the place that it was written and the people that it was written to? How does this have relevance to us this morning? And so that's what I'd like to talk about. How do we relate to Psalm 23? Well, there are an awful lot of connections in this poem to the life and the history of Israel. Um, there's the provision and protection that God provided in the wilderness to the people. And that is, those kinds of words and images show up in this. There's the enemies of Israel and of David in verse 5 and the identification of them and what that means. There's the tabernacle as the house of God where worship and sacrifice took place. And so this poem is steeped in the Old Covenant. But the biggest Old Testament theme that shows up here is the concept of the shepherd. Again, again in the Old Testament, even beginning in Genesis with Jacob blessing his children and then, and then continuing on into the later prophets, the Lord is called and named and pictured as the shepherd of Israel. He is the ultimate shepherd. And it is he who will make sure that his people, his flock, are properly shepherded by the leaders and the kings of Israel. That is what he will ensure. And perhaps the easiest and best place to see this is Ezekiel 34, where it is a long speech by God, by the great shepherd of Israel. And he's condemning the, the under-shepherds, the leaders of Israel who have led his people astray. They have not brought him, them into a, a covenantal relationship with him. And he is explaining that he's going to kick them out, that he is going to take over, and then he is going to place his king, whom he names David, over them to shepherd them. The problem is that by the time Ezekiel wrote that, David had been dead for about four, five hundred years. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring back this Davidic king and he will shepherd my people. The great shepherd will appoint a kingly shepherd. And so this concept of the shepherd king appears in the Old Testament, but not just in the Old Testament. This is a concept that would have been familiar to the people of the ancient Near East. The shepherd king was a concept they understood of their rulers, that it was their proper role and their proper title to take care of their people and to lead their people. And so in this psalm, the idea of the shepherd king emerges and the staff of the shepherd is actually also the staff of the king. So Psalm 23 then becomes relevant to us because years later a fellow by the name of Jesus would come and would make himself this shepherd king. He would claim in John 10 and in other places, to be the good shepherd. 
the shepherd king of God's people who was going to lead them right. And he claims without embarrassment um, that title in the Old Testament of the ruler of God's people who protects them and provides for them, that's me. I'm the good shepherd, he says. I will save my sheep. I will give my life for my sheep. I will protect the sheep in my fold by placing myself in the doorway to protect them from any danger. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to protect them from the wolves of false teachers. And I am going to provide them my own eternal life. And so Jesus is the one that we read in this poem who restores his sheep, who leads them to the Father, and who promises to always be with them and to never forsake them. And so we can read this psalm because we belong to him. And he's the good shepherd. His claim is actually pretty audacious, isn't it? He stands before his disciples and before the Pharisees and claims to be everything that his hearers understood the Lord God of Israel, the great shepherd king to be. That's me, he says. He claimed the title and the role of God himself, the shepherd king. And it is because of him then that we can read this psalm. And we can ask how it applies to us through him. How he provides and protects for us and how we should respond to him. So we're back to our original question, aren't we? Only this time we have confidence in the answer because we know that it comes through Jesus. How do we hear this psalm so that it touches us in Christ? in some of the ways that the original hearers would have heard it and meditate on it long ago. And so with that, let's move to applying the psalm. Let's go back to the first verse of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, it kind of sets the tone of the poem. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the shepherd is called my shepherd. There are a lot of places in the Old Testament that talks about the shepherd, but everywhere else he's called the shepherd of Israel. It is a corporate role. But here David says it's personal. It's intimate. The great Lord of Israel who brought his people out of slavery, who delivered them from the in, and brought them into the promised land, who carried them on eagles' wings, he says in, in Exodus 19. He parted seas and rivers for them. That great God, that's my shepherd, David says. These are the things that he does for me, even as he is doing them for his people. And so those past acts of salvation, they all belong to the psalmist because the Lord was his shepherd. It's a beautiful thing and one that we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes. One of the things that, um, that Jews, even modern Jews do, is they celebrate the Exodus as the deliverance of them. They identify with it because they are part of Israel that was delivered. 
And that's, and that's what we're going to do in the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. We identify with what Christ has done, even though we live 2,000 years later, because it's ours. What He has done for His people, He has done for us. He is my shepherd. What Jesus did in His death and resurrection for all His people comes to me and to you. For He is my shepherd, just as I hope He's yours. And so this great intimacy in the presence of God that is with His people is there because of Jesus Christ. That is the great provision of this psalm. To the great God of the universe in Jesus Christ, we can say, You are with me. You see, the thing that we won't lack, that we won't be in want of, is the presence of God in our lives. Because the Lord is our shepherd, we won't lack Him with us, guiding us, providing, sometimes in the bounty of green pastures, sometimes providing protection from enemies in the deep, death-like places. But how quickly we can change definitions of want, just like it's changed in the common use of English. How quickly we can define that first sentence in terms of having our wants satisfied. How subtly the words, my shepherd, can change from meaning that we can call him ours because he has bought us and we belong to him, to meaning that we call him mine because we want him to satisfy our needs. And in our minds, subtly the sheep begin to possess the shepherd. He is mine to serve my needs. And quickly then, a psalm that is meant to celebrate the overflowing cup of belonging to the shepherd. To belonging to his flock, to submitting to him and following his paths, knowing him personally, becomes a devilish individualism. We can call him ours. He is my shepherd, but not because he belongs to me, but because I belong to him. I suppose to some degree or another, all of us do this. We presume on the Lord, and Jesus is the one is there to satisfy my wants. I suspect that we do it to some degree, even if we don't realize it. But when we do, our religion subtly changes. We begin to focus on our wants and our desires and our perceived needs and our goals. And in short, what we do is we begin to find what it is that we lack and we focus on that instead of what we have and what we really need, which is the presence of the Lord in our lives. And sometimes His presence becomes one of the many things on our list of things that we want. And, that, and unfortunately, it might not even be that high on the list. But this psalm says that His presence supplies our lack. Think of what Paul said. If He has Him, He has everything. His presence provides basic necessities seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you Jesus says provides our need for companionship our need for identity that's a big one especially in our days our need for security our need for justice and for vindication that sense that things need to be right they will be they will be made right 
our fears of all sorts, these are met by His presence in our lives when He is the unchallenged shepherd of our lives. And so the great questions to ponder then are, when you say that Jesus is my shepherd, do you mean that you belong to Him? Or have our hearts subtly begun to change that, that we think the shepherd belongs to me? And second, what is it that you think you lack? It's actually wise to consider the realities of life and what is needed in it and to be industrious and all that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, especially as short as life is. But where does God's presence fit in on the list of things that we want? Because at the end of our days, the presence of God is actually the only thing that you can count on to accompany you as you leave this life. Another thing to ponder about this presence um, aspect is that when we have our laundry list of things that we think we lack, it makes us much, prone, much more prone to fail when temptation comes. We will sin more easily if we're not clear on verse 1. And that's because we want our wants satisfied and we we oftentimes don't think that that's going to happen with Jesus and so simply put we want and we want and if Jesus isn't meeting those needs then we're going to have to take it on ourselves and try to meet them and sin actually becomes more attractive to us because somehow we think that we can supply the things that we feel that we lack and it'll bring satisfactions to our hearts it's going to fill that want But this psalm is most powerful, I think, when we realize that the presence of the shepherd means every need is supplied. Please don't miss this opportunity to hear the power and the perspective of that first verse and apply it to your life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack anything. But notice also then, That the shepherd leads along paths that are right and that lead to righteousness for his namesake. The task of shepherding is actually about him, not me. Again, we want to twist that around because we're we're, uh, self-oriented. It's about his honor. It's about his glory. It's about him bringing his flock to his desired end. And the paths that he chooses may be wonderful and serene at times, but they may be full of deprivation as well. It might seem like a dream, but the death dark like valleys might seem like a nightmare. But both, both paths are paths of righteousness, aren't they? Both paths are leading to the host. Isn't it interesting, though, that it is in the dark valleys that the tools of the shepherd are mentioned? Um, think of it this way. Let's say that you are, a, uh, you are tasked with taking care of a child. It's your child, your nanny, your caregiver, whatever. You're, you're watching a child. And on Tuesday, on Tuesday, you're going to take the kid to the park. And you get to the park with the child, and it's not very busy. There aren't many people there. And the child sees the playground and, and in a fit of ecstasy runs off to play on the playground. And you are there. And you can actually sit on the park bench and watch the child play. Maybe strike up a conversation with the neighbor. But on Thursday, on Thursday, you're going to Disneyland. Parenting is a little different in Disneyland. 
You enter the gate, and the first thing you do is threaten the child's life if it lets go of your hand. Because the dangers are immense with the crowds. In a moment, they could be gone. And you seek the rest of the, the, rest of the day trying to find them. They could fall into all sorts of problems with all the different things that they have there. And unfortunately, it's well known, the predators are there. The shepherding style is completely different at Disneyland than it is at the park. And that's what we're seeing here. He leads in the serene times. There it is. Restore yourselves. But he cannot lead in the dark valleys. He must follow. Because he has to be able to guide and direct. He has to be able to see if something is coming to the sheep. And it is in the dark valleys then that the Lord's presence is most intent. That just like the Disneyland parent, he is focused in on you as he has you walk through the dark valleys. And oftentimes we feel like we grow the most in times of trouble as though we've come to some realization. Isn't it just simply that we're experiencing what we're made for, which is the close intimacy of the shepherd who is watching us as we walk? His rod, his cudgel is poised, ready to strike any enemy that seeks to take advantage of the dark path. Nothing can come to us that he does not see coming and it has the capability to keep away with his rod. And his staff is there, ready not just to provide support, but also to provide correction in the rough terrain so that the sheep don't wander off. Don't overlook the power and the, and the potential of the dark paths, as difficult as they are. It is in the darkness that one knows you are with me. And it is in the darkness that we receive the comfort from the shepherd. The goal for us is to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ, to know Him and the power of His resurrection, as Paul says, to be conformed to His death, and it is for His namesake. So here an old man who's gotten this wrong so many times, don't waste your dark paths with self-pity. Because they are the intense times of presence and of training by the Lord. And it is in that closeness, that in intensity with God, that David seems to revel to just be with the shepherd, to follow closely on the paths that he leads. And the psalm is full of what the host and the shepherd do for their, their sheep, the sheep in their charge, and the guest. The sheep and the guest simply follow and bask in being the gracious, in the gracious presence of the shepherd king and the host that he leads to. Such a beautiful poem. And that is what matters. Think of how much life would change if that became, moment by moment, the most important thing to us. His presence, our chief aim. We could, almost, we could almost write a catechism about the chief end of man. To simply relax and enjoy him, the gracious shepherd who loves his sheep enough to lay down his life for them and to lead them through dark paths to mold them into his image.
In that vein, I think it's important to notice how easily the psalmist moves back and forth uh, between talking about God in verses 1 through 3, the Lord is in third person, but then in verses 4 and 5, it's in the second person, you. And then in verse 6, it's back to third person. It's like it's a conversation, isn't it? Where the psalmist actually feels that God is present, assumes that he's there, and effortlessly moves back and forth and includes him in the conversation. That there is an int- a relational intimacy and a and powerful prayer that flows out that is intertwined with life. Not just a prayer of asking for things, things that we think we lack, but time spent with Him so that life itself becomes like this, an experience where God is part of it and can be spoken to as the shepherd king of our lives. That's where the confidence comes from. And then he leads them to the house of the host. And let me just close by saying that through his death and his resurrection, Jesus the shepherd king also became the house where we meet God. He became the temple, the house of God, and we are built into that temple, brick by brick, the New Testament says, as we come to know him. It is he through whom we experience fellowship with God, our host. And we experience His steadfast love. That's the word that's translated mercy there in 6. That God's covenantal commitment to us will follow us no matter where we go. That He, for His name's sake, is as committed to us as we need to be to Him. And so Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is bringing us to himself, to meet our host, the Father. We are even now in the household of God because of Christ. And we never have to leave because it is in him that our days will never end. And with that centrality of Jesus, let's move our minds and our hearts now to participating with what he has done and he is now my shepherd my savior and we're going to celebrate the lord's table together it's a meal for god's people uh, to celebrate what he has done for them and our participation in it that through faith in his death and resurrection we have had our sins forgiven we've been brought near to the host given his very righteousness as his children And so if you're here and you're not a believer, then this is not a meal for you. And we'd love for you to participate and watch, but not partake of the elements, but rather think about what it means for Jesus to be the Savior, the Shepherd King who gives His life for the sheep. There's another element, too, and it also relates to that corporate individual thing, and that is that this is a meal that celebrates who we are in Christ. And so both Jesus and Paul... Uh, warn us that if we are estranged from one another, this is not a meal for until that estrangement is taken care of. That this celebrates the fact that he has taken many individuals and made us one in him. And so if that is the case, we would also uh, admonish you to not participate in this time, but rather to deal with that so that the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper can be joyous in its restoration. 
So with those thoughts in mind, with a psalm and with preparation of our hearts for the Lord's Supper, let's take just a few moments to um, pray, to think about what the Lord would have us say through the psalm to prepare our hearts to celebrate His table.